Hey everyone, welcome to Savage to Sage, where we explore the evolution of entrepreneurs. In this show, we hear from leaders on the challenges and breakthroughs that have shaped them on their journey toward becoming a sage. Hey everyone, welcome back to Savage to Sage. Today I'm joined by John McDonald, the managing entrepreneur at Next Studios. Welcome, John. Hey, great to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me, Dan. I'm really excited to have you and especially to hear more of your Savage to Sage journey. We talked a little bit before recording just about what we mean by that evolution. And I know you've had a deep history in, especially in the technology and the SaaS space here in Indianapolis and around the country. And and now you're advising a number of SaaS and technology entrepreneurs through Next Studios. And so just excited to hear a bit about your story. And I know the length of time that we have, it'll be a little bit of a teaser. So maybe we can have you back on to share more in depth. But um, I'd love to just hear from your perspective, you have been in that space of savagery of standing up a company, and then now you're advising a number of startup founders as well. You've spoken to kind of that expectation that technology founders have on them to produce and sort of the impact that that had on you and that you see having on a number of people. And I would just be curious if you could share a little bit about your story and that savagery, what was expected of you and what were some of the consequences that you experienced by being in that world for as long as you were? Yeah, happy to. Well, you know, the first funders of Cloud One, which was the startup company that we formed after I left IBM, were all Indianapolis Colts players, specifically offensive linemen from the Indianapolis Colts, the Super Bowl winning offensive line. And so talk about pressure to deliver, right? right? You're not necessarily just dealing with the run of the mill venture capital. You're dealing with some very special individuals, right? And their ability to um, come after you if you don't do well. Also being the first time that I had founded a company, you know, where I was in the seat and I've been a part of other ones, but now I'm the guy. And so that, of course, first timeness of it adds to the level of self-expectation of what it is that you need to do to be able to deliver. The reality is that there's this myth that entrepreneurs are these wild and crazy, shoot from the hip, ram the torpedoes, so, you know, run up the flagpole, let's see what happens. And nothing can be further from the truth. The reality is that entrepreneurs are almost exactly the opposite of that. We're risk takers, but It's calculated risk. I mean, deeply calculated risk. You can overthink it very easily and and try to lay in what I like to call safety nets underneath the organization. Well, if that doesn't work, where do we fall through to? And what if that doesn't work, what do we fall through to? And construct a whole bunch of safety nets, you know, that if they never get used, no one would know, but it's okay. I feel sleep better at night knowing they were there. You know what I mean? I can recall one time very early on that we were having an all-company meeting. Well, I think maybe one of our first, but I wasn't at it because I was over in my office in another part of the office dialing our biggest customers, asking if they would pay their invoices early so that I could be sure I could run payroll next week, (laughs) right? And so, you know, that pressure to make sure that nothing falls off the rail 
you know, and I still consider it to be one of my greatest accomplishments that we never missed a payroll, you know, in that first startup, which is a pretty common thing, right? Mm -hmm. So I say that because I don't know why I felt compelled to make sure that that was a goal. You know, most startups go through some bumpy times related to their finances, right? I mean, that's kind of the thing. And for whatever reason, I had said in my goal, I'm never going to miss a payroll. Well, no one was holding me to that standard other than myself, right? And it added to the pressure unnecessarily, right? So to your question of, you know, why do you feel this unnecessary or this extra pressure to perform early on? It's not knowing better, right? And not knowing that that doesn't need to be a goal. We don't need to have all those safety nets. One or two will do, not 20. And all this fear, you know, in my head of failure, except that failure, in fact, is the only teacher. It's just a question of who's the student. So I, having some time and distance from that period, you know, as we said about creating a new venture studio, have a somewhat calmer (laughs) and wiser, I would say, perspective on the realities of getting a startup going. It'll always be take longer than you think it should. It'll always be smaller than you wished. <laughs> right? It'll, right? People will not do what you think they should do. They will do what they want to do. And so taking all those learnings, you know, and kind of rolling them forward. And I think, frankly, being more of um, willing to roll with it, the ups and downs of getting the thing going, which was not the case when we did it the first time. A lot of times in those high pressure cooker environments, you know, where the heat's on you, like you talked about. We learn a lot of things in regards to self-awareness. And I think self-awareness has kind of become a sexy thing. It's like, look at all my strengths and all the great things about me. But I would say in those times in particular, self-awareness is pretty painful. You realize these are the things that I'm really bad at or where I need help in. I was just curious if you could speak to here is maybe one area or two areas of self-awareness that you realize that were painful that were your best teachers during those early days? I'll give you a couple. One of the things I've realized about myself is that I tend to see people as I wish they were and not as they actually are. And then when they behave in a way that is consistent with who they are and not what I wish them to be, I get angry with them, right? Like as if they've disappointed me or misbehaved when all they were really being is who they are. And so what I've learned is that, first of all, you can't set yourself up for that kind of disappointment. People are who they are going to be, and you can't see people for what you wish they were. But more importantly, realizing that really the job of a leader is to try and get underneath the covers and understand where people are coming from so that you can be able to anticipate how they might behave in a given situation and then set the deck and set the chairs so that they can just be who they are, but naturally it works out better for them because you know you cleared the way for it, right? So if you know somebody has a problem with trust, why do they have a problem with trust? You know, Do you know enough about them to know why they have a problem with that? And then how do you make sure that they're put in positions where the building of trust isn't necessarily on the critical path to success, right? So it's more arranging the chairs for the benefit of who they are than trying to see your way into how you can improve them from some other behavior that you expect of them or wish they would do. Another thing that I have recognized about myself is that, you know, it goes to the old adage of you got to spend money to make money. You know, 
this comes true when I look to hiring my partner from a financial perspective. You know, you could call it your CFO or whatever. I consistently was terrible at hiring my finance partner. I would always hire the wrong person. <laughs> Somebody, again, early on who I thought had more skill than they did, again, seeing what I wish was true versus what really was, or hoping that they would be trustworthy when maybe they actually weren't trustworthy. Until I finally realized that you know the role of a finance person in your company is to be an enabler. In other words, it's the job of that person to not go no, doctor no. It's to be yes, and here's how I think we can accomplish that. To be a planner and a strategizer of the use of resources in order to enable the vision of where you're trying to take the company. I didn't learn that until after going through like four or five or six different people before I finally settled on what it is that you really need to have in that job. I just hope that if somebody listens to that and makes an assessment of who they're bringing in as their finance partner, that you don't have to go through six or seven people before you get that lesson, right? Who do you really need in that job? Important lessons, especially thinking of, I've heard this phrase once before of, expectations can be premeditated resentments. Yeah, right, right, right. That's it. Especially on that executive team, like you're talking about, if you have these expectations that are unrealistic, you're basically setting yourself up for resentment. And disappointment. And disappointment. And a lot of times that is usually for leaders is reflected in their own unrealistic expectations on themselves, which leads to this constant feeling of, disappointing myself, disappointing other people. And by the way, not just a downward spiral of doom, but no success either. Because if that's the pathway you're on, it doesn't lead to the promised land. Not at all. I've tried to, in my own self and in my encouragement of leaders, is to talk more about the difference of expectation and expectancy. Expectancy being this, you know, I hope that we can build a solid relationship where you know, we look out for the best in each other and we start to set mutual areas of accountability of like, here's how how I want you to hold me accountable, me to hold you accountable and agreeing on those. I think that once you're aware of that and then sometimes you're aware of some subconscious expectations too, and you start to call those out, it really improves the relationship. And I think that's a lot of times, I don't know in your experience, but that's some of the stuff. If it's not resolved, I feel like a lot of us take that home with us more than anything else, that discord and relationship. So I'm just curious, you know, when a lot of times this kind of thing takes a lot of time and a lot of entrepreneurs would say, Daniel, you know, John, I don't really have time to enter into some of like these types of reflective exercises for myself in relationship with my executive team. But what would you say to them? Well, I would say that it's your actual only job. I would used to say to people that as the leader of a company, I really had three jobs. Job one was raising money. Job two was hiring people that were better than me at everything. And then job three was keeping them. And if you could get into that third mode, it's nirvana because you don't have to do anything because everybody around you is, you know, better at everything than you are. So why would you even try? But in reality, it's not a mode of doing nothing. What it really is, is a mode that keeping them is really all about setting accountability, vision, and culture. And 
we could detail a little bit more of those three parts just for a second, but I'll tell you the punchline. All they really are is about getting underneath the covers of who people are and developing a relationship with them where you understand them and are building trust with them. Vision is the lighthouse in the distance where we're all sailing towards. And, you know, it has to be far enough away that you don't think you can get there yourself individually, but not so far away that you can't see it. And so curiously, it has to move, right? Because we're sailing, right? And we're moving. So I got to keep resetting the vision just far enough out. That's the bailing wire that holds us together as a team. Accountability is for your high performers. You need to set the bar so that your high performers know that they're crushing it. If you don't have no bar of accountability, then they're like, why am I even trying? That guy's over there is sloughing off and I'm trying my hardest here. Why am I bothering? Right. So accountability is what causes the aspirational activity of the best people on your team. And then culture is frequently misunderstood for morale. It's not. It's different. Morale is how you feel about working somewhere. Culture is the unwritten rules about how things are or are not done at your organization. As I like to joke, if I randomly walked up to an employee and punched him in the face, how would he feel? (laughs) Pretty angry, you know, might punch me back. Definitely go get a box and walk out, right? But nowhere in the employee manual does it say don't punch people in the face. So not punching people in the face or more generically not resorting to physical violence is an unwritten rule about how things are or are not done around here. And the sum total of all those things is your culture. And it's never more at threat than with every new employee that you hire because they got stuff done at their previous employer according to their set of rules and they just assume not to have to change, right? But they're not our rules, those are their rules. And so you have to be very cautious at the beginning of truly understanding where people are coming from, you know, not just who they are as a person, but also... What set of rules were you operating on before, before, so you can help you understand what our rules are and how they're different. And again, all of those things really get at to an understanding of people and how they work and how they're motivated. And that's key to keeping them. Do you understand me? And I'm very likely to stay working for you because I feel like I belong here and I fit here with who I am. Yeah, I appreciate that reflection. And the difference between morale and culture is really important. I was also picturing who I would not want to mess with on your team to get punched back in the face. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, they're all pretty tough. They would punch back. I'm pretty sure. That's awesome. So I know we've talked about this before in other conversations, but generally speaking, what we see in entrepreneurship is people, even sometimes people that are highly successful in their business, or at least they're marketing themselves as highly successful, often have a lot of trouble being successful, what I'd say in life, you know, with their families, their marriages, their personal finances, their mental health, you know, their physical health. And I'm just curious, what have you learned the most personally about how do you hold all that intention? How do you not let, you know, your work life just impact your personal life negatively and really prioritize those, you know, that generally those areas of health. I'm going to say some, a couple of things, you know, that probably people have heard before and, you know, have been successful for me, but then I'm going to end that by telling you that part of the problem for me or part of the solution, maybe you could say is what is your definition of success? So I'm deeply jealously guarded of my evenings and weekends. 
Um, <laughs> although I might open my email and read things, I rarely respond to anything unless it's between normal business hours, Monday through Friday. This allows me to cordon off that time to service my other interests in my life, starting with my family and my um, religion and all the rest of the things that are very important to me. But it also has the side effect of not setting an expectation with anybody else in the organization that somehow they all have to be online and working on the weekends and evenings because the boss is, right? So there's a double benefit of cordoning off and blocking those spaces as best you can. Now, obviously, there's leakage around the seams sometimes. You know, sometimes you got to fly out on a Sunday and you don't really want to to get to the meeting on Monday. But to the degree you can be jealously guarded of certain blocks of time outside the regular business hours, it'll serve you and your team well for that fact. But to this point of your definition of success, when I ask people that, you get all kinds of different answers, right? And you may hear that question and start thinking to yourself, well, what is my definition of success, right? And some people will say, well, I don't, don't have to worry about money or I, you know, have a fancy car or a big house or, you know, whatever it is, right? My definition of success is admittedly a little weird. It's when I don't have to be there anymore. So if you say, when do we say we've successfully finished a football game? When everybody leaves the field. When do you say you have successfully graduated from college? When you leave, right? And so uh, really, in many ways, success is marked by a departure. And if I can leave something and it's still fine or working or close to fine, I consider that to be a success. If it still needs me or it's dependent on me in some way, we have not arrived at anything yet. It's We have not succeeded. So for me... That means it's not some ultimate existential esoteric goal of when I finally am successful, right? It becomes a series of smaller successes when I can stand something up, make something happen, and then walk away from it and not have to be present for it to continue to do whatever it is that it needs to do. So I would just ask people to challenge your own definition of what success is. And if, is it really truly achievable or is it maybe something smaller and more achievable and maybe it's a bunch of things that constitute success, smaller successes that really are what you're after? I like that. I've heard an author named Bobby Clinton talk about finishing well and how basically a leader's goal is to finish well. And I think the leaders like you're describing that I've seen be most quote unquote successful are those that they have a succession plan and they're focused on leaving and leaving it in a place and in the hands of people that are going to take it to the next evolution, you know, whether it's company, organization, community, whatever that is, thinking a lot about legacy and how actions now impact remembrance and future people that carry on their legacy afterwards. I think there's a moment in your life, maybe you've come to it. I know I have where you realize that you're no longer building your resume, you're building your eulogy, right? It's at the point where your resume doesn't seem to matter anymore in any conversation about what work you're doing or what you might join or what you might do, that you've reached the point where you're now building your eulogy. And so that then starts to govern more of your thought process. That's a really good thing to finish on. And I also just like to ask everyone at the end of every show, what it is that you like to do to recharge that you find 
this best recharges my battery than any other activity. I sing and play keyboards in my church's contemporary worship band. Oh, nice. And if it was the last thing that I do on earth, that would be the last thing I would give up. (laughs) It is so much fun and so rewarding. I'm not any good at it. That's a problem. But but I can tell you that it's super fun to do. So Nice. Is there anywhere on YouTube we can find a recording of you doing this? Every week, regrettably. So, <laughs> <laughs> nice. uh, yeah, there's a lot of evidence to prove my point about not being any good at it, unfortunately. So <laughs> that's awesome. Music is such a key to what I like to call soul cares for a lot of people. So absolutely. That's awesome. So besides finding those videos on YouTube, where can people get in touch with you if they want to learn more about what you're up to at Next Studios. Yeah, you can hit me on LinkedIn or just go to nextstudios.org, all one word. Sounds good, John. Thanks so much for your time today. And like I said, this was just a teaser. We'll have to get you back on to share more of your story and your evolution. So appreciate it. I look forward to that, Daniel. Thanks for the time today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's interview. To view show notes or hear more episodes, please visit www.savagetosage.com.